and welcome to episode 16 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. I'm Anders Furs. And the sound of sleigh bells you can hear can mean only one thing. It's Oscar season. This week we're looking at the first big for your consideration hopeful to hit Australian screens, La La Land. We'll also talk Christmas movies. But first, we wouldn't be much of a film podcast if we didn't take a long, hard look at Rogue One, a Star Wars story. The Empire's building a weapon capable of destroying an entire planet. We have to capture the plans if there's any hope of destroying it. How many do I need? Make ten men feel like a hundred. Welcome to Rogue One. If the Empire has this kind of power, what chance do we have? We have hope. Rebellions are built on hope. Disney continues its box office domination with Rogue One, the first of many planned spin-off movies supposedly taking the Star Wars franchise into new territory. The plan is to alternate each December between the main franchise, continuing the storyline of episodes 1 through to 7, 8 and 9, and the supposedly smaller in focus spin-off movies. From the start, Rogue One emphasises that it's a different kind of Star Wars movie. Gone is the iconic opening text scrolling up screen. Instead of a snow or sand planet, there's a beach one. There are, however, no shortage of callbacks to the original movies, the most notable of which being the CGI-enabled return of the British actor Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin, the man in charge of the Death Star in the original movie. Rogue One takes place just before the events of Episode 4, A New Hope, the almost 40-year-old original film in this now potentially seemingly never-ending saga. We follow a motley group of rogues led by Jin Erso, played by Felicity Jones, and Cassian Andor, played by Diego Luna. They planet hop their way for an adventure that involves finding the plans for the newly created Death Star. Notably, Ben Mendelsohn puts his pan-Australian drawl to good use as the film's main villain, and Forrest Whitaker and Mads Mikkelsen also show up. Director Gareth Edwards found fame and fortune as the man behind a 2014 Godzilla reboot. Eloise, is the force strong with Rogue One? Well, the force is pretty strong, mostly because they repeat the line, may the force be with you a lot, don't they? Or they something do. like that, the force is with me. Um, <laughs> I am with I'm, the force. Yes. I am one with the force or something. But anyway, I wanted to pull you up on um, Ben Mendelsohn's pan-Australian accent. I really didn't like it. I <laughs> had a huge problem with his... He just sounded so Aussie. And I'm like, when you put an Aussie in a like cast of hundreds of... Seemingly hundreds of Europeans, Brits, the Aussie accent just can't pull it as like, you know, some evil overlord. I just couldn't really. It was quite odd, wasn't it? Yeah, and I felt like he was maybe trying to do British stuff. And, and um, as it got a bit further in through the movie, his British accent kind of did come through, you know, a bit more commanding. But in that opening scene, it was very distracting. <laughs> but I feel like I say that about every single Australian actor who appears in something else. Anyway, that was kind of, but he does look very nice, obviously. This was a big thing, Bendo. It, it, yeah, it was a big thing. His, his appearance, I don't know, he's interesting. Uh, he does a lot of acting opposite this CGI rebooted, retooled Peter Cushing, mm. who was, um, I was quite surprised to see he played quite a strong role in this film. It, it yeah, wasn't just I like have... glimpsing him from behind or whatever. It was like full on scenes with this guy talking, this sort of animated photorealistic version of Peter Cushing. What did you think about that? I have a real problem with that, of the fact that he died in 1994 and that he's in this movie now. Um, but as a character, obviously, he's excellent. And I kind of felt that he, he reminded me a lot of the evil, insane asylum character in Disney's Beauty and the Beast. 
the animated version. You know, just that same, like, skinny cheeks. And anyway, I was thinking about how Star Wars is now a Disney franchise and that maybe that's kind of why he was there because he's just such a great visual villain. Yep. That he kind of does that really nice, just easy, simple communication of being the villain that Disney really, you know, wants to kind of bash into its audience. Um, but yeah, as far as the, having a CGI, I don't know, it just made me feel a bit uneasy. Yeah, same, same. I sort of eased into it. I think after I was sort of I, it, the first scene we got of him, I did not uh, appear. It did not appeal to me. I thought Jar Jar Binks was more convincingly animated. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that was great. Christ on a bike. That's a step too far. Sorry. No. But, uh, but then I sort of got into it. But I, I was sort of thinking. This, that's what you've got to do with a Star Wars movie. You've got to let it... you sort of got to get onto its weird wavelength. And I didn't mm. really with this film. Like, you have these, like, Muppet space fish aliens who, are, when they're, like, delivering very gravitas-laden, depressing lines about people dying, it's all, like, if you're not in the moment, it just it appears absurd and ridiculous. I found some of it very strange. Like, it is, you know, a it's serious premise. And it's a, basically a war movie. You know, Star Wars, anyway. I can't believe I just said that. But, you know, it's a war movie and there are all of these representations of ethnic conflict and all of that. But there was some characters in there who had all of these lines of dry humour. Then I just didn't really get into them. They felt a little bit um, try, trying to me, those yes. those lines of comedy. And I thought it, there's enough to kind of, I don't know, maybe the, the original movies made in the 70s are just more kind of organically uh, light and and enjoyable than, than a movie like this, which I maybe agree. is a little bit superficially dark, has too much going on. I just found it very complex. And there was something about it, like I couldn't, I did, actually didn't get into this movie until the third act and then I was really on board with it and I found the final battle scenes, you know, very engaging and I was r- really kind of on side with, with all of the heroic characters by the end. But it did take me, you know, kind of one and a half to almost two acts to really get that far and I feel like maybe that's because it was overly complex and the storyline wasn't straightforward enough and there was too much going on and I feel like that's that's signified by the fact that they had to have text up at every you know every different location well we should at some point talk about what the film actually tells like this there is a there is a story here that will be fairly familiar to people who have that much time in the Star Wars universe which is that you've got a Joseph Campbell inspired hero story of an orphan with heroic parents who um, manages to overcome their angsty teenagerdom to become to rise up and use the Force to do great and heroic things. So in this case, we get Felicity Jones is playing Jin Erso, <laughs> daughter of Mads Mikkelsen's um, Galen 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 Erso. Yeah. yeah, sorry, these names kind of get me they don't roll off the <laughs> No, <laughs> and he has um, gone against his better judgment to take a role in designing the Death Star, which is a, a, a massive weapon that the um, that is going to be wielded to destroy planets, which is memorably memorably a big part of the 1977's A New Hope. Um, and so she, uh, and very quickly, like in the first 10 minutes, we kind of go through like five different planets. We're introduced to about 30 yes. different people. No, None of whom we get to know very well at all. Then we're taken to um, Jeddah, which is finally a town we spend more than 10 minutes in, and it's immediately destroyed. So <laughs> there's this, this jumping around the, the planet, the um, universe, which I've found a bit disconcerting at times. But then the story kind of keeps rolling along, and then it becomes almost a, a Dirty Dozen-style case of um, a bunch of people, a very, very diverse cast being thrust together to take on a against all odds chance to save the universe as they know it uh, yeah and look 
I don't know, I'm just a bit... See, I mean, episode seven did this whole thing with instead of a Death Star, there was, what, the Planet Killer or whatever it was. Like, it's just very repetitive now. We've sort of done this a thousand times. We've got to sort of slot in the father-daughter relationship or the, the, the uh, sorry, parents and children stuff. Um, we've got to call back to R2-D2 and C-3PO. We've got to, like, see Jimmy Smith's playing... That's, feel like he plays Princess Leia's father in the original prequels, but I may be making that completely up. Anyway, he appears in this movie playing the same character he played in, like, episodes two and three. So you've just got to, like, be constantly calling back to these, like, reference points from movies that out decades ago. To me, it feels like this film's not doing anything with that beyond calling back in this sort of weird, empty nostalgia cycle for events that happened a very long time ago in our cultural memory. I mean, is there a problem with that, though? Like, it's just basically, it's filling in some backstory for Star Wars and Episode Four, which is fine, you know, because it needed the backstory. Well, it doesn't need the backstory to exist as a movie itself, but now it has it, and that's great for fans. Like, that, that kind of... Element made me very excited. And I've got to say, it was very like, I really liked how it sort of explains how this film explains the big thing that people complain about Star Wars Episode 4 saying, oh, why were they so dumb enough to include this like very easy (laughs) way of destroying the Death Star? Well, this film does a really great job of coming up with a reason for that weakness to be in there. And I was actually quite impressed by, you know, the emotional context to why that existed. So I just. Mm -hmm. I totally dug that. But just, I don't know, as a whole, I feel like we've done this, we've done this a thousand times and we're going to keep on doing this a thousand times because these movies are mapped out for the next however many years. And I just felt like it wasn't doing... I, I, I feel like it seems like it's just stuck in this, this sort of repeating cycle of not really... Yeah, where's it, where's it moving it forward beyond being, you know, the final battle, you've got the space stuff up in the air, you've got the stuff down below. But instead of, like, being on the snow planet or the desert planet, we're on a beach planet. But it's just, like, the same, the same stuff. Thing. I mean, I think that's okay. Um, there are certain franchises at which I have a problem with it. But yeah. I feel like the, the emotional kind of resonances in this movie were strong enough to, to allow it. I don't know, Andy, you saw a midnight screening, didn't I you? I did. You were, oh. like, really into it, obviously. Well, I... I I really wanted to go on the day that it came out and I was there surrounded by people dressed up as various yes, characters yeah, from the yeah. Star Wars universe which is a wonderful place to see it but also it feels like my take did it there, feel like the Mos Eisley cantina yes exactly like that awesome. actually yeah um but uh, it, the strange thing was my review or my impression of that movie is completely instantly outdated because there wasn't information around at the time that I found at least about CGI, Peter Cushing or, or various other instance uses of that. So I didn't actually notice at all. I completely, oh, I completely forgot. I slid my mind yeah. that he died in 1994. I was like, oh, <laughs> fantastic. They've got him. And it looks amazing. And it didn't really occur to me because the, the CGI was so strong and then probably in a few years they can go back and retrofit it to make it look even better. So in, oh, will, in 30 years' time, you won't ever notice at all. He's going to somehow you know, be eternal. Which is kind of, you know, interesting in a way. But as well. he's eternal. The 1977 movie makes him eternal. Do we need to... That's true. But do we need this? Not, we well, need, I mean, we don't do you ever need a movie? But like, I think yeah. it is interesting that they can make cons- Disney can make conservative choices around a franchise like this, but then they can fund interesting stuff like Queen of Cutway, probably off the back of the stupid amounts of money they make from making all these conservative decisions. So I'm... Oh, yeah, but I don't know if that... Yeah, I... Look, I don't know. It just <laughs> made me feel really depressed and... And I don't know, it gave me this weird sense of ennui, which I never get from other mm. franchises that I don't like. 
as well. Like I watch a Marvel movie and it's or, and it's boring or average or whatever. I don't come out feeling the way that I felt. I don't know. I just felt. Is it because you're so it connected? I was so, yeah, as a child, maybe. Yeah, and I, yeah. And I was yeah. completely. Like I, mean, I, yeah, it's one of the first movies I've ever seen. It's mm. interesting. Like it doesn't, it doesn't do anything to ruin or alter no. a new hope as a as a film. No, and so totally. That that is kind of to its credit. Mm, it it almost enhances it yeah. in a way, which yeah. I think is really difficult. Because there to are really. movies that can really compromise, you know, another yep. movie that that they sure. are kind of dealing with. Mm. You know, so it doesn't do that, and I think that's really great. Um, but I also just really want to mention the music. Because it's uh, it was a new score, uh, they kind of incorporated some of John Williams' original Star Wars music in it, but it was a mostly new score uh, written by a guy called Michael Giacchino. Uh, excuse my pronunciation. Um, and apparently, he only had four and a half weeks to compose the score, mm. which is not actually really all that short a time. I mean, when I read that fact, I kind of was <laughs> like reading up on it because I really didn't like it. So I was reading the, the stuff on, on the internet about it today and I was like kind of rolled my eyes. And I was thinking about David Raxon who uh, wrote the score or the main title song for Laura in one weekend. And it became like the most famous uh, score yeah. of the time for, for a long time and kind of changed the way that we think about character motifs, music and stuff like that. So anyway, that really disappointed me when I, when I read that fact that he only, and I'm using yeah, I think sarcastic there's a, quotes here. There's a very good chance that won't be eligible for the best score at the Oscars because there is so much of Don Williams' original score yes, just reworked. He does kind of use the this, this start of John Williams' score and then mid, kind of mid musical phrase, he'll change it. Yeah. And just make it less impressive impressive and less yeah. dramatic. I know. There was yeah. not enough emotion in the score oh. and that's the whole point and you know you know Jurassic World used, reused the score from, from the earlier movies mm-hmm. and I feel like that is a vital part. There were so many moments. I mean the John Williams score didn't really come in until Darth Vader was revealed for the yeah. first time yeah. which is quite a way into the movie. It just really really let me down continually and even in the final battle they didn't really go for it. There was no punch. It just kind of mm. like mm. pulled back. Mm. And that really disappointed me. Have you watched, I uh, totally recommend going to YouTube and watching Dan Golding and Melbourne oh, Academics yeah. uh, video essay on modern scoring. Yeah, that's an excellent video And why it's essay, yeah. so forgettable because it's all about sort of being in the moment and about this sense of momentum in the in the scene which I yeah because as you mentioned this I thought well I've already forgotten the entire score really beyond well, I, the yeah I remember thinking at the time it's undercutting ones. itself constantly mm. because you keep acknowledging this thing you're not going to do and I'm like he's <laughs> yeah, obviously exactly. a composer so he must have known what he was doing why would you do that why would you even use a little bit of it if you weren't going to go for it just create something mm. new in, mm. well in, I mean, could he do that in four and a half weeks and oh. get it all no, yeah no, no. i mean that's true <laughs> there was there was like 70 minutes of music in the whole film you know in the in the it was 133 minutes so that's like half the film was all music so that's quite a lot that that, that had that's to be there, there. Mm. yeah yeah. But yeah that just was was a very big disappointment and noticeable one and i think because i went in you know you you know you go in with so much knowledge of these films already so you know what they're yeah. going to be doing and you have expectations. And I mean, the film obviously knows that the audience has expectations because it goes and it tries to satisfy all of them with all of the, you know, throwbacks to the older movies and stuff. So that, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me the way that the, they did the music. But, but anyway, 
Mm. Yeah, it's a, I, th- I think on the whole too, what's really missing, or what I felt when I came out of it is, I miss the originals, and I think it's more than just this franchise, you could can, can maybe extrapolate to Hollywood in general, but there's a real lightness of touch and simplicity to the original Star Wars that so- mm-hmm. is sort of missing from this. Mm. It's just really leaden, and like there's just so much going on, and the attempts at humour felt very sort of contrived and forced and tacked in as sort of like throwaway lines you know it's not it's not as fun and joyful as watching you know Harrison Ford as Han Solo or or, totally. or like Carrie Fisher or watching yeah. C-3PO yeah. and R2-D2 just talking like talking in the hallway or like going on the sand and just chatting because you know like you can tell that these people are actually people there's that link to them that you've got um, and that's really strong, I think, in those earlier movies. And, yeah, and the, there was no chance of a stormtrooper bumping his head on the, on the no. ceiling in this one. It was <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, one flicking child. There was no like, yeah, sense of chance or anything. I felt. Um, but I did think the world building here was really, really strong. Uh, yeah, there, it was nice to see all these different environments. I mean, you were saying, you know, it's very, it's a, obviously, you know, every single frame is a, is thinking about the 1977 film. But um, it also made me come away really appreciating Lord of the Rings a lot more because the, the yes, storytelling yeah, yeah. in that is like emerges from the people, emerges from the land. There isn't just a tokenistic, beautiful world happening in the background of a scene that could ha- could have happened anywhere. It's actually kind of you know really worked into the story, and so. There's um, a knockoff Sauron's Tower in this movie, well, too. Totally. I watched it. As soon as I saw yeah. it, I was like, oh, this is Lord that, of the Rings. Which is actually, <laughs> I think it's a building in London, a real-life building. Oh, it might be the Shard, cool. or it's near Canary Wharf or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was, it's been, yeah, that joke has been made several times <laughs> <laughs> on the, on, um, elsewhere. But, uh, yeah, there was it was definitely, like, a, even though it was massively entertaining, I was loving, you know, these lions and, you know, these people turning up, um, like the gold leader, blue leader, sort of callbacks to mm. the X, yes. X and Y wing fighters. That sort of stuff was great. Uh, what did you I mean for me I, I did connect with the I loved the sort of the emotional exploration of the idea of you know these these rebels who were who were, who were rebelling from the rebellion really um, and they're uh, going it alone and they know the odds are stacked against them as that droid keeps on telling them <laughs> probably one too many times and yet they do it anyway and uh, I love the sort of discussions in the ship about you know oh you to to Jin the mm. main woman. Uh, Diego San Diego Luna's mm. character. Diego says it's a gay porn star. <laughs> Diego, that's staying in there. Diego Luna's um, David about um, about oh, you have the luxury of dipping in and out of mm. uh, ideology. You know all that kind of stuff. I really found quite interesting and fascinating to watch. But you know, it all fell apart for me the very last five to ten minutes where it attempts to connected to episode four in a way that I don't think it really needed to. And that for me was when it all sort of fell apart. Like it sort of rushed through a lot in a very short period of time to get to a uh, sort of supposedly resonant finale that didn't work at all for me. But I don't mm. want to sort of go into spoilers, but uh, I yeah. loved it. I love the ending. I'm oh, still no. it. Just, just, <laughs> just putting it out there. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, I thought that sentiment was strong enough that it didn't have to be verbalized. Okay. I guess is yeah. what I would say. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, but no, yeah. I felt like um, unlike. Oh the- yes, I know what you mean. Yeah, the the concept was was great though. But anyway, let's. Yeah, yeah. Just I thought I just wanted to add that I think the, there's a few emotional scenes that it tries to have. Like, which just... Oh, my God, feel- there were some scenes that reminded me a lot of Deep Impact, just going to say, and I love Deep Impact, but, like, it's a trashy disaster <laughs> movie. Just, I think there were a few too many of those. But- oh, okay. 
Um, because there was there were scenes like uh, between Jin and her father that just felt like we've got like thirty seconds. To, we need to do to cry. We need to do this, and then we need to keep hasty, like yeah. moving on to the next location. Yeah, that's and true. there were so many scenes of a droid piloted aircraft coming in and saving people at the last minute, just like earlier. There films. were maybe a few um, too many of those. And yeah. Yeah. I just feel like you know Pavlovian response just doesn't work anymore. Like it's mm. not exciting. It's not emotional. I don't think anybody would have cried when the hero was crying, and I think that's probably something that you're often trying to do when you're mm. trying to you know yeah. do a story this big. So there's plenty of reasons why I think that didn't work. And we probably covered most of them. Um, I did really like Felicity Jones, though. Yeah. I mm. found her very engaging yeah, she as was a great. character. And, and she was totally, totally carried the movie. Yeah, and it was really difficult because we did got barely any, you know, backstory. We got a few scenes, but mm. it was no, we never got to know her or see her or looking out. Or what she did in those 15 years since, exactly, yeah. since she kind of, you know, left yeah. her father. Um, Apparently it's all laid out in the prequel books, which oh, you can now buy. Oh, very good. <laughs> yes. All right. Christmas time. Yeah, nice work. <laughs> cool. From intergalactic battles between civilizations to the trouble of a couple of struggling Los Angeles wannabes. Up next, La La Land. It's pretty strange that we keep running into each other. Maybe it means something. I doubt it. Yeah, I don't think so. You could just write your own rules, you know? Write something that's as interesting as you are. What are you going to do? I have my own club. Is that going to happen every time? I think so. How are you going to be a revolutionary if you're such a traditionalist? You're holding on to the past, but jazz is about the future. Maybe I'm not good enough. Yes, you are. Maybe I'm not. It's like a pipe dream. This is the dream. It's conflict and it's compromise. It's very, very exciting. La La Land is the third directorial production for 31-year-old director Damien Chazelle following on from his little-seen but much-loved guy in Madeline on a park bench and 2013's Whiplash, which was a film about an aspiring New York jazz drummer and his disciplinarian teacher. La La Land doesn't venture far from its subject matter, but depicts a vastly different world. Um, Emma Stone's Mia is an aspiring actress working in a cafe on the Warner Brothers movie lot. Sebastian is a dedicated jazz pianist with dreams of opening his own jazz bar, who plays Christmas carols at a nightclub. As they begin to experience glimpses of success they want for each other, their relationship is tested. Giselle's story is not told as just a romantic drama, but as a brightly coloured musical in the style of the French king of brightly coloured musicals, Jacques Demy, director of The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and The Young Girls of Roquefort. Anders, what did you bring back from your visit to La La Land? Well, I brought back a, a changing reaction. I, I fi- finished and I sort of left the film and I thought, oh, that sort of, that left me a bit cold and it didn't really emotionally move me. But now it's been about a week and it's really started seeping into me so i don't know yeah i don't really know how to mm. begin to uh, to assess my own assessment of the film um so i sort of found it beguiling in a way that the film's rather repetitive score is they're sort of <laughs> like this it's, it's sort of i don't know in a simple but emotional way i really liked what did i like about this film i really liked its retro modern setting um, you'd be forgiven for thinking it was set entirely in the 1950s were it not for uh, Emma Stone's iPhone that she carries around with her. And I think that setting is sort of the key to the whole film and why a lot of people might not like it because 
of the two leads, that setting is very much in keeping with the Ryan Gosling character. And I think this whole film is told from his point of view. And I think that's what why I sort of hated it because it's quite, I think the film, I mean, he's quite patronizing towards Emma Stone's character. Oh, totally. And uh, Yeah, and I'll be interested to hear other people's thoughts on this. And I thought the film itself sort of adopted that tone as well, particularly in their sort of jazz conversation. Oh my God, yeah, I just want to interrupt you, sorry, quickly. When he's like, oh, Charlie Parker really liked chicken. That's why they called him the bird. I was oh. like, oh my God, can you shut up, please? <laughs> anyway, continue. And, and then when she's like, oh, jazz, that's that thing we listen to in elevators. That's all mm. I know. Anyway, um, so look, I think, yeah, so I think that's the problem, the major flaw of this film. Um, but I enjoyed the aesthetic and it's quite a bittersweet ending. Um, and I found the structure of it quite intriguing so it starts off with a musical number set in gridlock traffic featuring none of the neither of the major characters or they sort of appear at the end but i don't they're not really in the song dance or no, not no yeah. they don't play a prominent role in it anyway and that musical number to me i watched it and i was like this is california really in a song like all these people thinking that they're living this glamorous beautiful california life and they're stuck on the freeway that is what california and is metaphorically and Stop. yes, metaphorically, Stop. metaphorically and literally, get it, get yeah. it. Yeah, I got it. Um, and um, it's, but it totally reminds me, like when I went to California as a, uh, as a, like tw- early twenties to do an exchange, we did a road trip down the the one hundred and one, and we played the song, you know, the Phantom Planet song uh, from oh, the OC, and it was this beautiful realization of my dream of of being a California road trip, and we were stuck in traffic gridlock for like three hours. It was like not. It's not at all the way these people sing about, the way it's lionised in popular culture. The reality is nowhere near that. I don't know if the film itself, the film itself totally plays into that lionisation, I think, but I think uh, the opening number separated from it is quite an interesting case study in that respect. Definitely. But anyway, that's enough of me rambling about it. What did you think, Eloise? <laughs> I was f- found it really interesting that you said you kind of didn't, uh, I think this is what you said, you didn't really think much of it when it finished. You yeah. were like, oh, this is fine. And now you're getting quite into it. Have yes. you thought about it more? My reaction is quite different, actually. <laughs> I, when it finished, I was like, that was, you know, really enjoyable, quite lighthearted. I got, you know, didn't obviously have reservations, but felt found myself reacting quite positively throughout the day to it. Um, but since I had already identified some stuff that I had wrong with it and I've been thinking about them more and I now think that it's an awful movie, basically. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, I mean, it has some good elements. Obviously, there is no problem with including references to old movies and he, Damien Chazelle actually does it quite well. There's a lot of stuff in here about, you know, as you said, Jacques Demy, um, even the structure and the, the ending is, you know, quite a direct reference to to uh, Umbrellas of Chabot. Yes. Um, a, a friend of mine identified that there's quite a few flourishes in the score that are references to Michel Legrand, who uh, scored a lot of Jacques Demy and a lot of other French kind of musical movies. And that's nice. There's obviously a lot in there about MGM musicals as I always, well. I always wonder though, like, is he, is there a point to that or is he just ripping it off? Like, is, is he the yeah. Tarantino of musicals? Oh, good call. Well, I mean... <laughs> Trade him up that. I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't really have a problem with that, you know, just yeah. kind of, you know, empty referencing. That's, yeah. that's fine. It's just, if the movie is not doing anything interesting, yeah. then, that, then that's my problem. And there are a few really huge things that I, that I think this movie is 
maybe thinking that it does and is not doing. One of them is having cast Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone in the leads. I mean, both of them are singers, you know, and I'm saying that really questionably. <laughs> <Bit of> charitably. <laughs> yeah, they can both kind of hold a tune. Ryan Gosling is the stronger of the two of them, but even then, he, I was listening to some of the score the other day on another podcast, um, and without kind of looking at his beautiful face, while listening to him sing, he, he loses Didn't quite it. happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, obviously Damien Chazelle chose these people because they've got noted chemistry on screen and they've got big star power. But basically what he's trying to do as, as Ryan Gosling's character wants to do is update jazz for new, the modern society. And I think that's exactly what Damien Chazelle is trying to do with this movie is update um, or bring musicals back, classic musicals back to modern society. But basically if you don't have... I mean, Hollywood doesn't train and its stars anymore to be big musical stars. And so no. none of its big stars yeah. are big singers. And so you can't have a musical that that kind of bases itself on it's these true. big songs. And there are very few songs actually throughout the film, which I think is noted, noted, noted by Damien Chazelle because he didn't want to maybe push it too far. Um, and even the singers in the opening song can't really sing very well and I think maybe that's because <laughs> he didn't want to overpower the, the two main stars but I think that's a main problem with this concept of trying to update or bring the musical back into to contemporary Hollywood production because we just don't have those kind of stars anymore. Um, anyway, my other problem is as you said, this is kind of Ryan Gosling's movie. I mean they're both struggling artists. Ryan Gosling is a struggling musician. Emma Stone is a struggling actor and they go through their artistic processes and struggles you kind of we get a really detailed description of what ryan gosling is going through we do. but then when emma stone emma stone yep. becomes this incredible famous art, art actress we don't see any of that no, we, we see don't. her first like show that one woman show that she wrote we don't we see the start and the end you know very very little of her actually acting and being creative and then all of a sudden she's famous and she's on a huge billboard and that's all we see that's the only kind of yep. note of her success is this huge billboard that she walks past on the street and i have a real problem with that it's like you know well she's a success so clearly we can we we don't need to go into her as a character and that that was a problem for me. Yeah. Thinking about it and yeah. as a structure and as a movie that it was trying to do, which was clearly support these two people together equally, didn't do that at all. That so that was a, a big problem for me too um, that you identified. And anyway, Andy. Yeah. Well, I'm, I guess I'm falling somewhere in between because during while I was watching it, I was going, "Oh God, really? This is the Oscar front runner." I was, God, it's so shiny, and the songs I quite liked um, at the time, and. It was a strange. I kind of respected the ambition because it's very rare for a young director to be given this bigger canvas to, to work and definitely. to be actually bring new songs out, not to remake them. Because usually live action musicals are something like Chicago or Dreamgirls, which are recycling a stage show that's already existent. So there's just adapting songs for the screen. Whereas here, it's all new stuff that you probably aren't going to have heard before. So I kind of respected him for that, and I thought this is a really interesting decision to make after Whiplash because you know you really could have done a lot of different things in, um, after the success of that. So I thought, you know, bringing Jacques Demy to L.A. was a really, really cool idea. But one of the best things about Umbrellas of Cherbourg is the fact that the Algerian War is going on in the background. And uh, there was a film academic at some point who said that that is one of the best anti-war films ever. And it's barely ever mentioned. It's like, you know, there's this longing and there's, you know. Yeah. 
And so I was like, well, that was kind of possibly a missed opportunity to bring some gravitas because God knows it's missing any sort of de- depth to the performances or a believable mm. love story. I mean, the p- fact that, that the love story of Instructor Me films is so believable is because there's often absence. Mm. So you've got this longing and singing and dancing about, you know, somebody being far away. Um, but in this case, it's, you know, because the, 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 the chemistry that the Gosling and Stone have had in Crazy Stupid Love was fantastic. I mean, you could, it was, it was great. I mean, there's a reason they've been cast in so many films together. But here, I just felt it just fell flat. I agree. I think their chemistry was nowhere to be seen in this movie. And I feel like maybe it's, maybe it's been done with two movies. That's, that's all they've got. And now <laughs> they, we, you know, they've, they've had it enough. They've had enough screen time. Yeah. Them, maybe. Um, and so I also felt that there was, um, like you mentioned before, about them not being great um, singers, but I think they're far worse dancers. They're, yeah, and they, this is a huge problem dance. because it wasn't... Oh, yeah, a, but that's not dancing. When Catherine Deneuve doesn't really dance, it's not really a problem. Because <laughs> I don't know, I'm trying to work out why, because you know, the whole world is so beautifully constructed. In I mean, Ryan Gosling can dance. Uh, he has a fluid... Mm, he's got a great moves, yeah. body, but, but he has but Emma to... Stone does not, unfortunately. And even there's a still of them, you know, that iconic scene where they're um, at the sunset in at the top of a, a hill walking to their cars. Yes. And even the still, mm. you can see Ryan Gosling and you can see he's a natural in this dance pose and Emma Stone is not. No. And it's really, it's unfortunate. Because, and I... I do like Emma Stone. I just don't think she's doing herself anything. Yeah, it's a real shame because I was thinking, what well, there was so much talent going around. There's talent just happening in the background of these of a lot of these shots, and it's a real shame that they decided to go with somebody like that. Because I mean, she's a great actress, and I have no problem with her at all. But I do feel like there was she could have gone to some more lessons or something like that. Because I can tell he's having to pull back what he can do to be able to match her, so that when they do dances together, it just doesn't really work. I mean, she does like, goes for a high kick at one point. I mean, yeah, anyway. So, um, that aside, she's probably going to win Best Actress or get some sort of... Oh, my God, I really... That would just increase my hatred for this movie so much. This is, (laughs) I mean, this is one of the things, like, it... it, Why is it having all of this Oscar attention? Because Hollywood loves a movie about itself. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, thanks. That's really true. It it does, you know, and, you know, the PR machines in overdrive about La La Land. The other thing I wanted to mention was I felt like they were quite narcissistic characters and, like, we were supposed to believe in their dreams to the extent that they did. Mm. It implied that Ryan Gosling's character, like, was wealthy or something, but then he got fleeced for some reason, which is never really explained. I don't know. I just felt like I never bought into all of that. And you know what I did find interesting? I felt it was very self-consciously trying to be a diverse film around it's two white leads because the background actors all of the sort of people they interact with Ryan Gosling's sister's husband is an African-American you know they really play up this diversity thing in the first first scene scene. there was a lot of African-Americans and a lot of um, women and a lot of you know there were there were Asian Americans as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so. yet it still got these two white people. Yeah. So it was lead. clearly trying to. Yeah. Be so I think like, it was trying to overcompensate um, for something there. Yeah. yeah I do I, feel like there were more scenes shot with J.K. Simmons that weren't used because he's in it for about he's got like two lines. Oh, he's great. He's I was like, why can't yeah, you be the tap dancer? Mm. <laughs> totally. Yeah. But then, can you imagine? Uh, like, I would still have a problem if he was going to like fall in love. Never stop. Or whatever it is. <laughs> yes. That that was a kind of a problem for me and I remember when this film was announced on Twitter there was kind of this response from a lot of people a lot of women especially or I'm not quite sure but you know like why do we need another romantic movie with two white leads like this is boring as hell and so there was this very very conscious attempt to be like we're not exclusionary but you know why cast two under you know or underqualified 
lead yeah. actors yeah. in that case. Exactly. Um, yeah, and if you want diversity, and, and make, why make John Legend the the villain? <laughs> oh yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. The, the... <laughs> yeah, but if you want diversity, you got to see Star Wars Rogue One. Yes, that's well, amazing. Yeah. Um, and I also wanted to just give a shout out to the final sequence because I quite enjoy this. Is, it's the sort of yeah, the, this mm. like it was very good. It sort of the film abandoned for like an hour. I felt like a long time in the middle of this movie. There's no sort of singing or dancing. It was just like mm. talking, mm. and then there's like this very long, um, entirely musical sequence, and it's. A uh, good example of what I like to call the pay fossil-laden wish fulfillment dream montage, mm. and of which we get many. I think it's become a bit of a thing. Um, mm. It made me think of Mummy, Xavier Dolan's Mummy, instantly, and it wasn't quite as good as that. But I, I thought it was an interesting. It was an interesting semi, semi abstract. Well, it was it was doing interesting things. I thought it was an interesting example of non-verbal storytelling. I guess you know from a major Hollywood film. That's really true. I I quite like that sequence, and it impressed me that Damien Chazelle was trying because it's that's not a standalone thing in a musical. Like that's that's harkening back to like a long history yeah. of, of musicals, kind of commenting on the idea that a musical is this utopian ideal. Yeah. And so basically, at, at the end of the film, you see that it's it's maybe you know things haven't gone quite exactly as both leads would have hoped. And then there's a there's that flashback and you get this fantasy sequence of everything going perfectly because the music solves everything and the music kind yep. of fixes all of our problems. And I really did appreciate that as a commentary on, you know, the musical as this yeah. utopian construct that, that Damien Chazelle was engaging with. But know. then, yeah, when you say that, and, it's like, and I think, well, why not just watch a musical because it will do that to you in a far more effective, successful way, I think, than this movie. Despite the fact that I think it's better than I originally gave it credit for, it's yeah. still like, it's not, it doesn't, it can't even begin to hold a torch to classic Hollywood movies. Well, that's movies. true. And I feel like he's trying to do that and that yeah. that is the main flaw with this movie is that, that it does not hold a candle to any of them. No, I think a lot of times it relies on charm mm. um, and... And colour. I mean, the colour yeah, is the quite visual great. palette is cool. The cinematography is, is really nice, really yeah. engaging. Mm. And I think that yeah. was one of the, the things to which I responded so warmly yeah. at the beginning because yeah. I was just so on board. And it, it's very engaging and it really knows how to kind of sweep you up in... I mean, uh, there's a stunning sequence down by the Santa Monica um, jetty, or I think, or whatever the down by the beach. And it's just like oh, this yeah. purpley, pinky water and sky, all the same colour. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, the City of Stars. I think that's the song. Yes, that's using that. It's yep. probably oh, yeah, going that's to it. win another Academy Award for it as well. Um, so that's La La Land. It's opening pretty much everywhere, and we're mixed. At this point in the podcast, we talk about what's going on on Mubi, and uh, we've got a recommendation from a listener about some films that he's called on Mubi. Uh, this is from Tim Hoare, he of beamovie.net, and he writes, Hi, Cultural Capital crew. On a recent episode, you asked for people to give some thoughts on their Mubi experience. 
I'm writing to recommend Hannah Fidel's A Teacher, which is a nice short one for folks looking to finish off their hashtag 52 films by women for the year. The film is focused on a female teacher having an affair with a male student. It's a familiar plot and it generally goes the places you would expect, but there is a depth to the characters, especially the lead played excellently by Lindsay Berg, that makes the film worthwhile. This film also has one of the best scores I've come across in an indie this size, so if people are into film music then I would definitely say this is a must watch. Cheers, Tim. Thanks Tim for writing in. Cool. Yeah, that's that still on movie until... That's until Christmas, Christmas Day. Day. Yeah, so still time to catch that one. Anders, what's your pick for the movie? Right, so this week, I'm this fortnight, I'm picking The Immortal Story, which is Orson Welles' final film. It was... Uh, final fiction. Final fiction film, I should clarify there. Um, it was originally broadcast on French television, and so it's kind of like a telemovie because I think it only has a running time of about 60 minutes an hour. Mm. And I think it is, in fact, the shortest film that he directed. And it stars Jean Moreau. Uh, it's a French film, and I'm very curious to see it because Orson Welles is a fascinating character in film history, and I haven't seen this movie. Right, yeah, I caught it last night, and it is really, really interesting. It was the first. It was meant to be the first of two um, adaptations that he uh, did from by this uh, Danish author. Yes. Um, and it is quite weird because he basically was almost in semi-retirement at the time, and so he's shot a lot of it in his own house, in which he has this huge estate just outside Barcelona. And so he's dressed it up to look like Macau to play um, the location for this story wow. in which he plays a very wealthy elderly merchant who um, becomes interested in this uh, sailor's story about an old man who pays a young sailor to impregnate his young wife because he is, uh, the old man is no longer able to. So he decides to recreate this in real in, and turn this fantasy story into a real story. So he, he, he gets his... Um, you know, uh, one of his offsiders to go and start to find a woman and find a sailor and make this happen. It's um, as weird as it sounds. <laughs> um, and most awesome. of most of the uh, the cast are actually just the people employed from a Chinese restaurant nearby because mm-hmm. to, to to make it look like Macau. It's a very weird film, but it also it's one of the great things you would find on movie and probably not many other places. Um, Eloise. Yes, yeah, your... so I was overjoyed the other day to see Showgirls, Paul Verhoeven's <laughs> show, Showgirls was on movie, and I adore this film. I actually haven't seen it in a number of years. I first saw it on an undergrad uni course back in whatever year that was. But anyway, it's a great film, kind of a um, cult classic, I suppose, if I can use that term. I do, you know, <laughs> kind of use that term reservedly. But but it's hated um, by a lot of people. It's the epitome of camp, I suppose, in, in a lot of ways. It's really great. So this is a Paul Verhoeven film from 1995 about a, a young woman who comes to Las Vegas and then becomes a dancer and manages to, in all of her naivety, push her way kind of to the top of the Las Vegas dance scene. She's played by Elizabeth Berkley, and Elizabeth Berkley was not treated well for this performance. Like, it is so over-the-top and, like, unbelievable. She's a great dancer, but not a good actor. And it, But it really fits. It just fits so well with the whole Absolutely. aesthetic of the film. And I just, I love, I even said this jokingly to a friend and she thought that I was being serious, that um, it's, it's Versace line instead of Versace. Anyway, I <laughs> fucking love it. It's glorious. Gina Gershon, Kyle McLaughlin, Kyle McLaughlin and Elizabeth oh, Berkley yes. in the swimming pool. In the pool swimming pool. Yeah. So um, the water. famous. The water. He's just outrageous. Um, the whole thing is 
glorious and amazing, it's basically. Good it's good fun. It is... Look, you know, it's one of those terrible, great films, but I actually think it's great. I mean, the, the structure of the, the story is very easy to get into, very easy to follow. The cinematography is excellent. Paul Verhoeven is a great filmmaker, basically, and so this is a great film, yeah. even though it's, it's kind of, you know, trash cinema. It is a really great watch. Mm. And it's got a real reappraisal the last few years, I feel. Yeah. Yes, people yeah. are coming back, yeah, mm. around to it. Yeah, it's getting more of a thing, maybe because of it's Paul Verhoeven or maybe because, you know, these films that, that are spurned on release do tend to have revivals, you know, every, as a, you know, it's kind of cyclical revivals, so maybe that's why. Anyway, <laughs> showgirls, everyone, 29 days to go. See it. <laughs> so I'm singling out Band of Outsiders, which is uh, the first in movies Forever Goddard, a retrospective season. And this is a film that's very easy to love. Probably a lot of our listeners have already seen it. It's full of all the stylish edge that still feels modern from the Nouvelle, Nouvelle Vague scene. So Band of Outsiders tells the story of two men who fall in love with the aesthetics of gangster movies and decide to enlist a girl to help them steal money from her own home. Um, Anna Karina and a dance scene in a cafe are probably what people most tend to remember about this film. But there is a lot more to love here. And it's also a film that I think works really well on smaller screens. It's not really made to be Absolutely, seen. Absolutely, actually. So, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, I feel like it's got good intimacy and yeah. speedy editing that works well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I agree. That's bad about ciders. And you've got 25 days to watch that one. Yeah, so as you probably know, Mubi features one new film a day, which is available on their streaming service for 30 days. Well, you can watch them in Australia for $9.99 per month, included in those 30 days, you know, is the kind of thing where they're having a, a Goddard film festival and the reason they can kind of, you know, present it like that is because it, it won't last forever. But thanks to a special promo, our listeners can try Mubi for a month free by heading to mubi.com slash cultural capital and following the prompts there. Give Mubi a go, check it out, check out the 30 movies or, you know, as many as you can. It's great value even, even without watching 30 Even movies. if you do one a month, it's still pretty good. Yeah, so that's <laughs> movie.com slash cultural capital. We hope you try it out and let us know what you think. Yourself. I have a terrible feeling. Did you lock up? Let yeah. yourself be light. Do we set the timers on the lights? Mm-hmm. What else could we be forgetting? Okay, so now because it's our last episode for the year and it is Christmas and we do, we are all insane nerds about Christmas, uh, the three of us, we've decided to talk about our favourite Christmas movies or Christmas moments in films um, and we had a little bit of a conversation about what you know what defines a Christmas movie is it the spirit is it the tree is it Santa is it just kind of one reference um, for me my favorite Christmas movies all embody kind of a certain bittersweet earnestness and desperation for happiness that is in the plot and in the characters seems almost beyond reach and reality they all, all the movies that I love to watch at Christmas, all contain pathos. And while Christmas as an experience isn't necessarily like this to me, I do like to have it kind of as this cinematic myth because it helps to shape the day and the cold kind of feeling of the, of the few weeks in the lead up um, and give it a certain warmth that I really like. When the actual event itself can sometimes, you know, be really nice and, and you can, uh, get along with people that you that you like and spend time with them it can often be really hectic and overshadowed by the pressure of gift buying and even the pressure pressure of 
gift receiving. The reason I really like these movies is just because I, I kind of like having this idea of this idea of Christmas that isn't necessarily aligned with, with the one that you know we live. That's kind of how I see Christmas. The movies that I'm going to mention kind of have that feeling. And sorry, I just got maybe really soppy. Oh no, no, that's great. Because no, anyway. I was thinking about something quite similar in that um, often the, the British Christmas movies will be much, will be have like a bigger message. They'll have some sort of thing about society or they'll make some sort of comment about all you know like we've got you've got love actually for example which you know has you know people have a lot of strong feelings about but also that's an example of like a modern british film that, that like we'll have we'll, t- we'll look at all different strata of society like a christmas carol yeah. has a big, big deeper mm. message and american films tend to start with the idea of consumerism and then showing you there's more to it or they'll exploit that for family morality and stuff. yeah it's a lot of yeah, yeah it's much more it's yeah. usually tighter for that reason, I kind of tend to get drawn towards both of these, <laughs> both of these types, a lot for different reasons. And there's, you know, excellent examples of all of them. Yeah, Anders, what's what's one of your favourite Christmas movies? Well, I don't know if it's well. Okay, I've got to I've got to mention here, Carol, Todd Haynes's Carol, which is only a year so old, good. one year anniversary, guys. Um, <laughs> but what a beautiful film! And I think very much in keeping with this idea that you mentioned of Christmas films of mining the emotion of the season to high effect. So this is a 1950s set melodrama in in classic Todd Haynes style, filmed gorgeously, and it's a sort of melodrama uh, about a sort of romance that slowly develops between Kate Blanchett, uh, this sort of wealthy woman in New York, and she uh, falls in love with the Rooney Mara character, and she's the shop assistant working at the beautiful department store where she goes to buy a gift for her child, and they sort of form this bond over the course of the movie. Very... Very sort of emotionally resonant, I think. The score, beautiful score. The score and the way it's shot. I think that idea of, of something that lasts far beyond the end of the screening time is in keeping with this idea of Christmas movies. Okay. Great film. Great. What about you, Eloise? Well, I've got a lot that I, that I really <laughs> adore, but my favourite Christmas movie or movie to watch at Christmas is this 1940 Barbara Stanwyck film. Oh, cool. What? Um, doing it again called Remember Stanwyck. the Night. Directed by Mitchell Leeson and scripted by Preston Sturges. Ooh. Um, and so it does have, you know, quite a lot of that lightheartedness and humour that Preston Sturges is well known for. But at mm. the same time, it's just this incredibly sensitive, caring, um, loving film, a loving presentation of a relationship. So it's the first of four films to star Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray as the two leads. Their chemistry is such and the script writing is such that you can really see them fall in love throughout the film. And that's what I really love about this. So it starts at Christmas, Stanwyck plays this woman, Lee Leander, a compulsive thief who gets caught and sent to trial. Fred McMurray is Jack Sargent, assigned as her prosecutor. The the case gets or the trial gets delayed until January 3rd. So out of the kindness of his heart, because it is Fred McMurray after all, he arranges for her bail and then they discover that they're both from Indiana and so he drives her to her home and Mm. ends up taking her to his family Christmas. And it's just the most beautiful movie, basically. And it's so touching and there's so much commentary on family love and relationships and betrayal and... Beulah Bondi is Fred McMurray's mother in the movie and she's glorious um, and can get anyone to cry, basically. So it, is, it does go beyond Christmas. It ends up through to New Year. So it has this, you know, nice, joyous mm. everything feeling. Anyway, that's my number one Christmas movie recommendation. Well, every year I try and watch a new Christmas movie because there are so many to catch up on. 
will rewatch It's a Wonderful Life. I really probably don't need to explain its brilliance to people, but I am very much looking forward to your take on it, Anders, when yes. you go and catch it at the Astor screening on Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve with my family. It's the first time any of us are going to oh, see it. Brilliant. I'm so very jealous. excited. It's such a I'm perfect place excited. to see it. Cool. Um, yeah, so usually um, I also try and catch Die Hard 1 and 2, which is basically a story about a man trying to keep his family together but keeps getting interrupted by terrorists. And I think that, yeah, there is a lot of Christmas spirit with, all the way through that film, and it's very justly adored. Um, but recently um, I caught a... When I was watching, I, worked, I did catch Remember the Night a few a few years ago, and I, and I did really like it. Especially oh, you said you hadn't seen and it. And then when you were describing yeah. it, I was like, oh, my God, those scenes in Indiana are just wonderful. Mm. They're so beautifully mm. lit, and it's just... Oh, it's strange. Yeah, it's really strong. But I also cool. caught uh, The Bishop's Wife, which is a film directed by Henry Costa, shot by Greg Toland, so it looks amazing, and scripted by Billy Wilder in parts. But he got an uncredited, he was uncredited for that. Mm. That's basically a movie about David Niven, who plays a bishop, Henry Brogham, and he is praying, he he's neglects his family and he's praying to God um, over and over again to try and get money for a new cathedral so he can have a bigger, more impressive cathedral in New York. Um, and his prayers seem to be answered by a very suave angel played by Cary Grant, and who, very much in the mean, in the way of It's a Wonderful Life, has a very he's been brought down to earth to teach this man like very different lessons. Um, it's really funny. It's beautifully shot. It's got some incredible scenes of um, Central Park in the winter time, um, and it's also really underseen, given that there is so much star power in this film. And that's one I would definitely recommend. Cool. We're catching. I was very intrigued to watch. I watched yesterday. It was playing on Channel Seven. Uh, Home Alone, the sort of prototypical '90s Christmas movie that everyone talks about. And I haven't seen that since I was a kid, and I'd sort of forgotten about it completely. And a, I was struck by how well made it is. B, uh, what was interesting was the uh, conspicuous consumption and this very wealthy family. I mean, they have <laughs> yes. this amazing house. But how? sort of sadistic and violent it is. Uh-huh, I mean, there's uh-huh. scenes of nails going through feet. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and, and like this how scene. How religious, how very appropriately Christian. Kids, kids yes. love that though. And that, well, they do. And the uh, the scene of um, where Macaulay Culkin's character, he goes to like meet Santa and Santa's like just got off from like work or whatever. And he's got like this crappy car that won't start. And he's like smoking a cigarette and they have the interaction. And he's like, oh, I've run out of candy canes. And he just gives him like a couple of really sad looking tickets it's just like there's this yeah it's quite amazing i was i was sort of blown away by um the sort of i mean it's warm-hearted but there's also something deep deeper going on in there and it did make me think a callback to the last episode i thought goodnight mummy and it's twin boys who inflict torture on their mother using kids stuff it's exactly what this kid's doing in home alone like one of my movies Anders. it's the horror it's the horror version of the of this yeah. exact same shtick yeah i know i couldn't recommend it in my not my top christmas movies since <laughs> it was one of my top precocious children movies yeah yeah um, i find it very interesting actually listening back to the yeah. last episode it's like when we think precocious you think really really cruel violent and <laughs> awful yeah. and then we think Christmas and you go straight to the sadistic yeah, brutality of Kevin McAllister my my thing a lot about <laughs> yeah I don't know what that says about me but anyway uh, I think about, to find out. The about the Home Alone movies and I love Home Alone 2 Lost in New York I love it so much but the the scene at the end where the um, you know they enact the battle plan um, for mm. the two robbers is so much more over the top in the New York 
version and oh, yeah. so mm. like this sounds remember. ridiculous but it's much less believable that they would survive the kind of torture that he inflicts on them in home alone 2 <laughs> than in home alone the original version which sounds totally ridiculous as as a statement but it's it's true anyway but home alone 2 is lots of fun yeah it is and brenda blethen as a pigeon woman mm. is wonderful oh i forgot about her in that yes uh, she's yes yes yes, yes 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 great big heart too. love it some other films that i've been watching in the last couple of days uh, shop around the corner there's brilliant the Film, the Apartment, Billy Wilder, Incredible. again, oh, yes, such good. a beautiful, yeah. warm Christmas movie, um, and everything else. You know, not necessarily just Christmas. You can watch these movies anytime. Desk Set, the Walter Lang film, 1957, with Catherine Hepburn, um, Spencer Tracy, and Joan Blondell. Who doesn't love her? Cool. No one. Don't tell me if you do. <laughs> um, and the Umbrellas of Shabor, just going to mention oh, again, yes. the final scene is just this beautiful oh. Christmas scene. Cool. Mm. Uh, one of the kind of, one of the best and most heartfelt um, that embodies all of those things that we were talking about that Christmas movies do. Cool. Um, um, and the thing I also love is to watch the um, Buffy episode in season three, Amends, which is a Christmas episode uh, and just does so much. And <laughs> Buffy and Angel are beautiful and in love and it's very heartbreaking. And anyway, I love it. So I like that episode as well. I think it embodies <laughs> all of the, the essential things about Christmas. Cool. I just wanted to briefly mention Eloise, you uh, raised before we came down here, The Night of the Hunter, a movie that we've mentioned, I think, before, several times before, I'm sure, in this mm. podcast, but that ends at Christmas time, does it not? Yeah. And I think, I mean, while the whole film is not set around Christmas, definitely if we're talking about embodying the Christmas spirit of yeah. family and children and, and all that kind of stuff, unconditional love, yeah, yeah. it's definitely one of those films. Yes, but it is on Christian terms, very much so, in the very beginning and very end of that film. Mm. Yes. Biblical quotes are plenty. Um, while we're on the subject of TV, I wanted to single out um, Black Adder's Christmas Carol as being essential viewing, as well as Alan Partridge's Knowing Me, Knowing Yule, <laughs> which is as good as a joke. Yes, I've seen that. It's fantastic. Yeah, oh, Alan Partridge. It's Partridge's very right. black humour yeah, in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, of course, Muppet's Christmas Carol hasn't been mentioned yet, so it should be mentioned. Great. All right. Well, happy Christmas, everyone. Yes, and we'll be back on January 1st to count down our films of 2016. We'll also be featuring some special guests on that who will be talking about their favourite films of the year. See you then. <laughs> See you then. <laughs>